can see that anyone who puts their faith in Christ and truly receives the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will be forgiven. Our assurance of pardon, Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. God, we thank you that we get to gather together to worship you freely. We thank you for your glorious gospel. God, we ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would open our eyes and our ears to hear the truth of your word proclaimed today. Put our faith in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Each week we also get to come together to proclaim a truth about our Christian faith. We get to confess something that we believe about God together. Some weeks it's found in our confessional. Some weeks it's found in the catechism. This week we get to read the Apostles' Creed. Please read the name of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Paul puts before us in 1 Timothy 
1, 12 through 17. Paul says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy, and it deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What does it mean for a church to be gospel-centered? I think probably in the circles that we are all around, we, we hear that terminology a lot. We want to be a church that is gospel-centered. But I think it's easy to kind of overlook uh, the reality is of what it would look like, kind of the gravity of the situation that it would look like in a church if it really took down deep roots into the gospel. And the Apostle Paul writes here to Timothy, his son in the faith, and he communicates not only the content of the gospel, but the effect that the gospel has in the Apostle's own life and the effect that it ought to have in the church's life. He underscores this gospel message for Timothy, and Timothy is a pastor himself. He spent a lot of time with Paul. Certainly, Timothy knows the gospel, and certainly the church that Timothy preaches at knows the gospel. And, and you know, the gospel has been carried down through the ages. We as a church still hold to it. But why does Paul underscore this gospel message? Because Paul knows in various ways that you and I are like him in need of mercy and grace. And he knows if you don't see yourself clearly, you will not see clearly who Christ is and his immense relevance to your life. So Paul, this is where he goes in this passage. He says, I have three considerations. You need to consider me, the apostle, consider my story. Then you need to consider Christ, who he is and how central he is to the message. But then lastly, consider ourselves. So first, consider the apostle Paul. Now, I'm sure probably a lot of us in this room are good Bible readers. We know a lot about the Apostle Paul. He wrote 13 letters of the New Testament. Uh, outside of Jesus Christ himself, Paul is the, arguably the greatest missionary this world has ever seen. Uh, we, you, know, you look at the book of Acts and you see his missionary journeys as he's going forward. and He's, uh, he's constantly sharing his story. In fact, in several places, aspects of his testimony, which is just so foundational to the story of redemption that the New Testament communicates. Uh, aspects of his testimony uh, are everywhere from Acts 9, Acts 22, Acts 26, Galatians 1 and 2. Uh, he shares his story pretty extensively in Philippians 3. And then also right here in 1 Timothy 1. And when you read kind of these passages, you, you begin to perceive really clearly the Apostle Paul never lost the wonder of his conversion story. You see that really in verse 12. 
Paul says he's thankful to God for giving him strength, for judging him faithful, for appointing him to his service, all despite, verse 13, formerly being a blasphemer. And Paul says, I, I was a blasphemer. I was one who slandered God, who overtly spoke evil against him, who led others in doing the same. In fact, you, when you read in Acts 26, Paul stands before King Agrippa. And, he's, and he says this pretty explicitly. I tried to force Christians to blaspheme. But it kind of gets worse. Not only was Paul, as verse 13 describes, a blasphemer, he was also a persecutor. That's in verse 13. Paul was relentless. He was driven in persecuting the church. He would enter houses of Christians, rip them out of their houses, imprison them. Sometimes doing worse. You get a glimpse of this in Acts chapter 7. Uh, Stephen, the first uh, Christian martyr, he preaches this incredible sermon displaying how God's faithfulness has been to Israel and ultimately that he has provided a redeemer, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and people like Paul and the other Pharisees and the religious leaders crucified him. They didn't realize that he was God's answer, God's Messiah, and they put him to death. And Paul, who was Saul at that time, is sitting there as Stephen is being stoned by many holding the cloaks of those who stone him, giving approval to that. And as if that is kind of not the worst of the worst, calling yourself a persecutor, he says in verse 13, I was an insolent opponent. Some of your translations will say, I was a violent aggressor. In the Greek, hubristus, a person driven by violence and contempt for others, a desire to see other people humiliated. And so here's Paul just from his own lips saying, look, this is who I was. I was, I, I was a persecutor. I was a blasphemer. I was a violent aggressor. This is who I was. But then you get to verse 15, and he switches to the present tense. And he begins to say, this is who I am. And he says in verse 15, I am the foremost of sinners. You know that? That sounds a lot like an identity statement, not I was, I am. And his point is this. If you want to talk about a class of people who could be labeled sinners, I'm at the top of the list. And, you know, just, just think about what he's already said in this passage. The grace and mercy of the Lord has already come to me. It overwhelmingly has come to me. It's broken through my hardened heart and my opposing lifestyle. He rescued me, and yet, I am still the worst sinner I know. For, in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, Paul says this, I am least among the apostles. In Ephesians 3, 8, he says, I am least among the saints. And here in verse 15, I am foremost of sinners. All present tense. And you know, when we hear words like this from the Apostle Paul, we begin to think, man, that is incredibly negative. What low self-esteem and self-confidence he has, and so, especially in our, in our current cultural moment where people are very sensitive to um, people's self-expression and their own sense of identity. And you, you can almost hear someone say, you know, if, if Paul was here and he was saying those type of things, you can almost hear someone say, and you really shouldn't talk like that. 
you really should think of yourself more positively. And to be absolutely fair, the Apostle Paul in his other writings and various other places, he has more to say about his personal identity and the identity of other Christians. Namely, that we are not merely sinners. We are also saints. And it's good for Christians to also realize, yes, our sainthood is very important for our ongoing transformation in the gospel. But Paul knows this. Unless you and I see ourselves accurately and humbly flawed, not just in our past, but in our ongoing relationship with God, we will not truly appreciate the grace that God extends to us all the time. And it's really this truth for this reason that in many counseling settings, especially in like marriage counseling, that just this emphasis on not blame shifting the other spouse as the source of all your problems or or blame shifting kind of the scenario or the situation as uh, the, the cause of the problems. But to, there's, a, there's this emphasis on looking inward and saying, how have I sinned? What has been my contribution? How should I change? And when you and I have the humility to do that, it allows us uh, to move forward and to realize that God has extended his grace to us. And therefore, we can humbly see our own faults. Grace has been extended to us, and that grace has a face, and it's the face of Jesus Christ. And that's really what Paul wants us to consider next in this passage. He says, consider Christ. Verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You know, in a lot of ways, this is really the gospel message in nine words. Just kind of almost like a mini creed, a a little formula. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And you think about it, the creator of the world, he leaves glory and he enters into his world. It's like a Stephen King novel where, you know, the famous author kind of writes himself into his universe of, of, of books and stories as a character within the story. Jesus Christ left eternal bliss. He took on flesh and blood, and he came into the world sent for a very definite task, and that task was to save sinners. And you know, just this purpose that Jesus has come to save sinners, it's, it's really everywhere in the Gospels. We hear it from the lips of Jesus often. So you come to a passage like Luke 19, 10, where Jesus kind of gives his purpose statement for why he came. He says, I came to seek and to save the lost. I, I didn't come merely to make salvation possible. I came to do a very definite thing. I came to seek and to save. You hear Jesus in, in Luke 5.32 where he talks about who he's come to call. And he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call the sinners. You see it in Matthew 9 where Jesus, um, he says, it's not the healthy that need a physician, it is the sick. And that he said to a bunch of Pharisees and religious leaders that were all around him that were giving him a bunch of grief because he is reclining at a table with sinners and tax collectors. People who, in their eyes, are so far from the kingdom, so far from earning their righteousness by their law keeping. And Jesus said, I I came for those people. You see it in Luke 18, and, and, and really in Luke 15 as well, but in Luke 18 in terrible form, where Jesus says, uh, 
there are two people that go up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee. The other, a tax collector. The Pharisee goes up to the temple and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, the unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I, I give a tithe of all that I get and I fast twice a week. That's his prayer. And meanwhile, the tax, or the tax collector is over here. He can't even bring himself to look up to heaven. All he does is beat his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that man will go home justified. Or you come to Luke 15, a passage that probably a lot of us know really well, the passage of the prodigal son, where the prodigal son comes to his father and says, in essence, I, Father, I wish that you were dead. Go ahead and give me my share of the inheritance. Peace out. I'm gone. And he runs off to a far distant country, squanders all that he has with reckless living. He hits rock bottom and humiliation. And kind of in a sense of uh, desperation and at least some level of repentance says, the scripture says he comes to his senses and he thinks, man, my father is awfully compassionate. I wonder if he take me back. Not, not as a son. I know that I've kind of forfeited that, but I wonder if he would take me back as a servant, a hired man. And, he's, and so he makes his trip back to his father. He's, you guys know what happens. His father is sitting there. He's waiting for him. He's looking out for him. He sees him at a far away off. He runs towards him. Father, I've sinned against you. I, I, I'm not worthy to be your son. He hugs him. He embraces him. Because all this father can see is this, this is, a, this is my son. He's not, he's not merely a servant. He is my son. I, I, love, I love him. I want you to give him the ring. Go get a robe for him. Go get the fat calf. We are going to celebrate this because here was my son who was lost and now he is found. And they throw this major party. Here is, here is a, a son who defied lived recklessly, came to an end and thought, and I just messed this up really bad, and then receives a welcoming grace from his father. Knows he had screwed up, repentantly comes back to his father, and his father is excited to see him. That, that is the heart of God. That is the excitement that God has for his children. And we could multiply example after example that just like this, d display the heart of God that make us consider Christ in the way that Paul wants us to consider Christ. Jesus is a gracious Savior to sinners who see their need for Him. And it's a trustworthy statement, and it deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So we consider the Apostle Paul we consider Christ, and lastly, we consider ourselves. What does this mean for us? Not what you guys, as a, as a covenant Baptist here, as a church, what does it mean for you as a church, and what does it mean for us as individuals to be gospel-centered? I think one thing as a church, it means that you and I are free to be incomplete people beloved by God. 
We don't have to put on masks around one another and act like Pharisees that we've got it all together, that we're perfect in every single way. The gospel frees us to be incomplete, to be in process. Jesus is perfect. We are not. He covers us. And so we can be honest about who we are. Yes, if you're saved and you're, you're in right relationship with God, the Holy Spirit has come and has begun to do a major work in your life. He has begun to, by the power of the gospel, to reorder your pursuits and your loves. But we're not perfect. And we're in process. And you know what? The church is full of such people who are pursuing Christ and holiness together. But we're not going to arrive until heaven. So because of that, we can be honest we can be gracious with one another. We can be helpful to one another in our own walks with Christ. But we can walk as imperfect people with a perfect Savior. Another thing it means for the church is that, to be gospel-centered is that we don't stray away from this message into some other kind of pseudo-gospel message. This is the only message in the whole world that can produce lasting change in the human heart. And this message is really desperately what the world needs to hear. In a world, especially like we find ourselves in 2021, uh, in a world that's constantly shifting and craving consistency and sure-footing, especially during a pandemic that uh, has come and gone and yet is maybe still coming. And I mean, who knows where we're at right now? Everything is shifting all the time. In a world like that, it's the gospel, this gospel, that people desperately need, even if they can't perceive it themselves. And so what I've tried to do, just as a young, new church planner in Exodus in Springfield, is to create a DNA for our church from the very beginning uh, to say that we're not going to move from this gospel message. We're going to preach it and teach it. And counsel people through it. And I know that that's really the heart of Pastor Kendall here at this church. We want to be gospel-centered and hold to this and hang on to this. Come back to it. Rejoice in it. Rehearse it. Week in and week out so that it can get deep into people's hearts and transformation can occur. Because this is the only gospel. And through it, God changes lives. That's part of what it means for us as a church. What does it mean for us as individuals? And realizing there is definitely some overlap in some of this. One thing is we don't buy into the cultural narrative that viewing ourselves as sinners is kind of primitive or old-fashioned. You know, I don't know if in maybe conversations that you have out, out and about, if you have conversations that go something like this. You know, when you start talking about yourself as a sinner, that is, that is such an old outdated, unsophisticated way of describing humanity. You know, we know much more about the way things, you know, the way we identify as people today. Uh, we have way more sophisticated understandings of human anatomy and psychological theories. And we know more and better about what makes people tick the way they tick. We don't really need to call ourselves sinners. And we just say this. No. Jesus and the Apostle Paul has diagnosed the problem well. Another thing it means for us is that we recognize that this message, this gospel message, clearly opposes what many religions teach. You guys know this probably well and have heard this, but uh, many religions teach that getting right with God is essentially like 
having a ladder up to him, and you just climb the rungs of the ladder, and you do that by your moral uh, law-keeping, and you do it by your religious service. And, uh, and so in order to get right with him, be made set for heaven, you just keep being a good person and keep climbing that ladder um, by the things that you do, and that will make you right with him. And the gospel message is, no, there is no ladder high enough to get right with God. Instead, God comes down to you. He comes down to deliver and to save. That's the message. The gospel is for those who humbly see their need and receive Christ as personal Savior. And the gospel begs us to come to him, to come to this Savior unpretentiously, unreservedly. Come to him and be washed. He will take your filthy rags and he will give you a perfect robe of righteousness. Not because you and I deserve it, but because his heart is gracious. It's big. He's incredibly compassionate and he delights to save sinners. You know, another way of saying this is that the gospel is not good advice. Good advice sounds like, you know what, I would recommend, if you want to kind of get right with God or you know, get your spiritual life on track. I, I recommend maybe doing some of this or this. Oh yeah, when you start doing this, maybe take some of that out of your life, maybe do that less. All of that stuff is good advice, maybe. But the gospel message is not about good advice. It's good, good news. And news sounds like this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, receive it. That's the good news of the gospel. And I recognize even maybe on a morning like this, some of you may be here feeling just incredibly distant from God. Maybe you're well aware that you're undeserving and you're well in tune with all of your flaws and, and your sins and that you don't deserve to be in his presence. And I think for you, you need to realize that the good news that God is not stingy with his grace. He invites you, come as you are, draw near to him. He will draw near to you. After all, this is really the point of the passage, as Paul says. Consider the reason Paul gives for highlighting his story. The reason is in verse 16. Verse 16, Paul says, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul's reasoning goes like this. Look, think about my story. If even I can be forgiven, let that be an example to you that no one is too distant from God to receive forgiveness. Even if I could receive mercy, let that show you the vast mercy that God has and the patience that God has for his own. Let me be an example to you who think that maybe you are too dirty or too unacceptable to believe in him and to belong to him and to receive eternal life. Paul said, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with love. You know, I, I got a fresh sense of just the power of the gospel when it hits the human heart. A couple of weeks ago when I read an account coming out of South Korea, of a man named Lee Jong Rock. Lee had gained a reputation in his town for his willingness to care for disabled children. 
So what he did was he built a box, and he called it a drop box, into the front wall of his home because he didn't want any baby to be thrown away in the midst of a culture that views a disabled baby as a curse and therefore is unwanted. So he built this metal box. He outfitted it with gentle warming lights and a blanket and just a simple sign that said this. This is a facility for the protection of life. If you can't take care of your disabled babies, don't throw them away or leave them on the street. Bring them here. And you know, it's hard to imagine, but this particular drop box that he made, it's seen over 650 babies unwanted by their mothers and their fathers. And you know, when, when Lee is asked, why, why do you do this? What, why do you take this on? This is what he says. I never planned to be a savior or to do anything great. It's not something I did because I'm such a great person. I just followed God one step at a time. None of this was part of my plan. Lee now finds himself as a pastor, but before he was a pastor, he says, I was a raging alcoholic and I abused my wife. He eventually hit rock bottom and in a place of desperation and hopelessness. The gospel came to him, won him over, and he committed his life to Christ. He asked God to bless him with a son. And God answered that prayer. His wife got pregnant. And after hours of struggle, his son had a massive cyst on his left cheek that the doctor said, unless you have surgery right now, he's not going to. So they went through with the surgery. Then the doctors told Lee that his son would ultimately be a vegetable for life. That his limbs would kind of jet out in strange angles. And that he would be permanently bedridden. And they were right. His son has lived to this day 29 years on his back. He said his son is the reason why Mr. Lee cares about the voiceless the vulnerable, and the unwanted. You know, so remarkable is this story that it really traveled across land and sea, and it touched the heart of another person, a filmmaker named Brian Ivey. Ivey reached out to Pastor Lee after hearing about this. He asked if he could come live with him and witness his life and his ministry and why he does what he does and how this even happens. He sent him an email, and after months, Pastor Lee responds back in a Google-translated email. I don't know what it means to make a documentary film about my life, but you're free to come live with me if you want. So Brian Ivey, the filmmaker, came and lived with him, and in the course of the filming of that documentary, Ivey ended up committing his life to Christ. This is what the filmmaker said. As a result of my time spent with Pastor Lee and his son, I realized that in my ignorance, I thought I was already a Christian simply because I thought I was a good person. For me, I, I didn't smoke cigarettes. I didn't watch Fox News. Or I, rather, I watched Fox News with my mom. And so I assumed, because of it, I was a Christian. And then he said this. I needed to see my sin. But even more than that, I needed to see the love of a God who would want me. In the midst of it. And he said, Pastor Lee and his son, Umon, 
taught me that God's love, God loved me even though all I had to offer him was my sin. You know, we think about a story like that, and we think about the overwhelming love of a Savior that comes to take sin away and how he uses people who have been captivated by this gospel message to do it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is a true and trustworthy statement. And because this is true, the Apostle Paul just erupts at the end of verse 17 to close out this section. He says, To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. May Covenant Baptist hold to this gospel, love this gospel, rejoice in this gospel, because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Praise God, he came for people like you and people like me. Let's pray. Father, would you work this gospel truth deep into our hearts? We thank you that you are a a God who is compassionate, who comes for people who are not looking for you. You redeem. You redeem by the blood of Christ, and we're grateful for that. Would that touch us anew? Would it inflame our hearts to live for you, a perfect Savior? Even as we walk with you imperfectly, you have us. May that take on deep resonance in our heart. You are the King of the ages. You deserve all glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Praise God. Amen to that. And what a great way to respond to God's awesome faithfulness by hymn number 61. Would you please stand with me as we think about this great grace and mercy that God has shown all of us. We will sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness.
Each week we end our service and we get to sing the doxology. And I just think it's kind of cool that what we're about to sing, essentially, we've pretty much done for this entire hour. We've praised God and we've worshipped him. So would you please sing with me, hymn number 13. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Thank you for letting me come and take over the pulpit for just a Sunday. Grateful for the work that the Lord is doing here and uh, eager to continue to, to connect with uh, Pastor Kendall and uh, to hear what becomes of this church as y'all continue to move forward rooted in the gospel of God's grace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you 